My name is Bill, and I'm a believer who is in recovery from alcoholism. I am also an adult child of an alcoholic. There was a time when I thought I would never need to admit anything like that. Although I come from a family of alcoholics, I thought I would be different. My dad had a problem with drinking, but I was sure I was different. I believed I was different up until the evening of Friday, February 26, 1999 when a tragedy occurred in my life, changed instantly. My story of growing up is that of an ordinary boy in a military family. My earliest years are memories of being lonely. Since my dad was a career Marine, we were constantly moving. In the first 11 years of my life, we lived in Illinois, Michigan, North Carolina, Virginia, Wisconsin, Missouri, Hawaii, and California. We never stayed in one place long enough for me to attend the same grade for two consecutive years. I am the only boy among seven children. Although many people would guess that I was the spoiled one, I actually felt like the odd kid out much of the time. felt nervous of my sisters being closer to each other than to me. It seemed as if there was no one to share my thoughts and feelings with. I became somewhat shy and introverted. I've always felt comfortable remaining silent around others, whether I know them or not. I prefer to listen rather than speak. My dad was the toughest guy in the world. He was a by-the-book Marine. In my youth, he rarely showed emotion toward me. I felt as though he handled me in accordance with some Marine manual. He was a self-made man, having enlisted in the Marines even before completing high school. His first duty was in Korea where he was shot in the head during combat. Dad survived the ordeal and received a Purple Heart. I figured nothing could kill him. I was always very proud of my dad, and I respected him, even though I could not get close to him. We'd been living in Wisconsin about a year while Dad was away in Vietnam. One morning, as we were getting ready for school, the phone rang. Mom answered, and we knew immediately that something was wrong. We quickly learned that Dad had a heart attack and was in very bad condition. Everyone was crying, and it seemed that life would never be the same again. He survived the heart attack, and after he recuperated in the hospital for a time, the family reunited at his next station assignment in Hawaii. This is where I first witnessed my father's affinity for alcohol. I would go with him for his Saturday round of golf, and we would go to the bar afterward. He made me promise that I wouldn't tell mom where we went. On another occasion, I inadver inadvertently caught him standing in front of the open refrigerator, chugging a bottle of wine. He saw me and profanely insulted me for looking at him. I was confused by his reaction. I couldn't understand what he saw in the bottle. It seemed only to cause problems with him and mom. When his assignment in Hawaii was up, we resettled in Irvine, Irvine, California. After an attempt to own and operate a beer bar, Dad got a job with the county. As we settled into our lives, I made friends with Ray, a neighborhood kid. Ray and his family were Christians, and they attended church regularly and took me along. This was a new and different experience for me. The free grace and forgiveness they spoke about was intriguing, but I had a hard time imagining a father who could forgive unconditionally. Mom and Dad were practicing Catholics. All through grade school, we were required to go to catechism, as well as church, every week. 
I was baptized as an infant, received First Communion at age six, and First Confession at age eight. I knew there was a God and that Jesus was my Savior, but I didn't have a close relationship with Him until I came into recovery. Somewhere around age 15, my parents allowed church to be optional, and I opted out. I still prayed to God almost every day, but I didn't want to go to church anymore. When I was 18, I took a job as a clerk at a liquor store while attending college. Although I hadn't had a desire to drink, it was always around. My first experience with drinking came soon enough when some workmates and I went to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I chose a large bottle of Grand Mariner from the store selection to share with the others. I was told it tasted like orange, which sounded a lot better than rum or vodka. So we sat in the balcony and chugged straight from the bottle. It didn't take long before the drinking process reversed itself, and even though I got sick, I had enjoyed my first experience of being drunk. My inhibitions were gone. I was sociable and less self-conscious. I came out of my shell. I was more fun, more gregarious, and I felt like I was more accepted when under the influence. Little did I know. I finished college with good grades, passed the CPA exam on my first attempt, and landed a job with a prominent national public accounting firm. I remember trying to impress some of the partners at a Christmas party with my knowledge of wine. I was the center of attention at a big round table, showing them all how to swirl and sample wine. Well, I must have swirled a little too hard because the wine slipped out of the glass and was strewn in a large circle all around the table. It was not white wine. I later went to work for a local CPA firm in 1984 and stayed there for seven years while, raising, while rising through the ranks and developing my career. I met Diane while working at a client's office in Los Angeles. She was so beautiful that I hardly had the nerve to speak to her. Another accountant, who was also my roommate at the time, had his eye on another secretary in the office. Together, we asked the girls out. Diane told me she only went along because her friend was so insistent, but we hit it off and saw each other every chance we got. She became my wife in 1989. During this time, my family and friends performed an intervention on my dad. I can remember feeling like a hypocrite when it came time to tell dad how adversely his drinking had affected our lives. The intervention worked for a while. Dad entered a program and abstained from alcohol. Then my parents retired and they went on a long vacation. Sometime during this road trip, dad decided to start drinking again. In August, became ill, and a few weeks later, he was hospitalized with liver disease. The whole family was at Dad's bedside for two weeks. We knew there was little chance for recovery, but we hoped and prayed. Dad was tough enough to survive gunshot wounds and heart attacks, but he would not defeat alcoholism. He died at the age of 55. The entire family leaned on him so much. I still have dreams about him as though he were still around. I miss Dad deeply. But even his death was not enough to make me change my ways. In my denial, I reasoned that my drinking would never get as bad as his. After all, I only drank on the weekends, not, not every day. God was trying to get my attention, but I still wasn't ready to listen. I had several dangerous episodes while drinking. 
The common theme was that I escaped almost completely unhurt. There were some damaged vehicles, but they could and would be repaired. My life went unscathed. What drinking problem? As time passed, my wife finally went from concern to anger about my drinking routine. She was ready to leave. I had no alternative but to promise to stop drinking. I kept that promise for three weeks. When confronted with the accusation of being an alcoholic, I explained to Diane I am not an alcoholic. I just can't control myself after I take the first drink. My denial knew no limits until the evening of February 26, 1999. I was returning from a business trip in Houston, had a few drinks at the airport and on the plane. It was early Friday evening when I arrived in Orange County, California. I called Diane and arranged to meet her and our daughter, Kristen, for dinner at our favorite Mexican restaurant. We had a few margaritas along with dinner. Since Houston, I had been drinking for six hours, had crossed two time zones, and was feeling no pain. We finished dinner and headed home. Diane drove separately, so she and our daughter got in her car and she asked me if I was okay to drive. I gave her the routine reply of, yes. We took separate routes home. It was 8.40 on a Friday night and I was anxious to get home. I was less than a half a mile from my house as I approached the crest of a hill driving way too fast. A red Toyota coming from the opposite direction was turning left. I first saw them as they crossed into my lane. I'm not sure if they ever even saw me. There was almost no time to react. I lunged for the brake and started to turn the wheel to avoid them. Impact. Airbags, screeching, screaming, then silence. I was amazed to find that I couldn't get out of my car. That I could get out of my car. I didn't think the other car fared quite as well, but I was too dazed to be able to tell. It wasn't long before the, sil the sounds of sirens announced the arrival of the police and paramedics. I was taken away from the scene, tested and booked. Shortly before I was put in Orange County Jail, the officer notified me that there were two people in the car that I hit. A 50-year-old woman had been thrown from the car upon impact and died immediately. Her husband was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. As I sat there in a jail cell, I knew my life would never be the same. My whole outlook changed in an instant. There was nowhere to hide and no one else to blame. Regardless of what my intentions were, I believed I had committed an unforgivable offense. I made choice one right there, right then. I realized I am not God. I admitted that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. I made bail the next day and went home. As I waited through constant feelings of guilt and remorse, my whole family was there to comfort me. After a lifetime of being unable to express my love to them, they were there in my time of need. I could not make sense out of this life-changing event, but I knew this wouldn't blow over in a few days. I knew God could make sense of it, that he had the power to restore me, and that he would 
if I'd let go. A week after the accident, the entire family attended service at Saddleback. I had been to church there a few times with Diane and Kristen. This week, the message made me weep. They sang, O Lord, Holy Lord, and I identified with every word. When I thought my life was over, you were waiting there for me. Now I can see that there are good things only suffering can bring. After the service, one of my sisters was walking by the information tables, and I saw John, an old friend of mine. He was manning the Celebrate Recovery table that morning. We talked later that afternoon. He told me all about Celebrate Recovery and that a step study group would be starting the next day. I could see that this was, was no coincidence. John picked me up and drove me to that Monday meeting and stayed with me. Short time later, I asked John to be my accountability partner. I cannot put into words the guilt and shame I had over the accident. At first, the remorse was almost unbearable. There appeared to be no solace for me with the constant thought that I had ended two lives and left their children without parents. This was further compounded by the prospect of losing my job, my driver's license, going to prison, and losing all my possessions in a civil trial. With the help of my family, celebrate recovery leaders, accountability partners, and attention to working the choices, I learned what it meant to accept hardship as a pathway to peace. I knew there were going to be consequences for my actions, but I tried not to be frozen by my worry. The Apostle Paul tells us, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. People ask me how I could continue to function with the weight of what I had done and the impending hardship on my shoulders. I tell them, I focused on surrendering. I prayed for God's will. I informed my employer of the accident. It would not have surprised me if they had let me go. Somehow God saw to it that I kept my job. The DMV was not so understanding. Shortly after the accident, my driver's license was revoked. My job entailed much travel and I didn't know how I was going to manage. God did. Every time I needed to be somewhere, he provided me with a way to get there. Thank you to everyone who ever gave me a ride. A month after the accident, the arraignment hearing was scheduled. I was placed on house arrest. I was required to be at home at all times except for work, church, and celebrate recovery meetings. I wore a bulky, irremovable bracelet around my ankle for more than 13 months. It was uncomfortable to be sure, though not nearly as uncomfortable as the jail cell would be. I knew God had a plan. He allowed me to hold a job, to be with my family, and to work the choices at Celebrate Recovery. There were several court appearances throughout the next year. Each time I walked in, I knew I might not be walking out. Family and friends were always there to comfort and support me. I knew people were praying for me, and I was very thankful. Meeting nights at Saddleback were a safe harbor there was no judgment, just care, concern, and love. Finally, a sentence was handed down. Three years in state prison, with credit for the time I was on house arrest and for good behavior. I had a few days to tend to matters and prepare my family for my time away. I can't really explain why, 
But I knew everything was going to work according to God's will. He was in control. I was apprehensive, but not afraid. While I was in prison, a number of friends were there to look in on my family. John, CJ, and Joe, to name a few. We had known them only a short time, but they showed such a willingness to help and extended themselves to us in our time of need. Joe was especially helpful. He painted and installed a new front door, moved furniture, and was a general handyman for Diane. I am forever grateful to them for acting in such a selfless manner. Time passed quickly. Before I knew it, I was headed back to Orange County. God used my sister to convince the state that I should be selected from a large number of inmates for a work furlough program. I was blessed to find a job even before I arrived at the halfway house. Another benefit to the halfway house was that I was permitted to go to meetings. I remember the first Friday back at Celebrate Recovery. That wonderful feeling of being in a safe harbor came over me again. I have never been hugged so hard so many times in all my life. God restored my fellowship. A civil trial still loomed. I was blessed to be referred to a lawyer who genuinely cared. After working on my case for several months, he admitted to being an alcoholic himself and today is active in the program. God's word assures us, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. My lawyer was gentle and persuasive during the trial proceedings. On the first day of the formal trial, all parties agreed to a settlement. But how was I ever going to make amends to the two children of the couple I had killed? How was I ever going to do what choice six asked? During this time, my lawyer had the opportunity to speak to the oldest son of the deceased. The son told my lawyer to tell me he had forgiven me for killing his parents. This man, who I never actually met, modeled a grace for me that I will always treasure. No way do I deserve it, but he forgave me anyway. We often hear in recovery that we have no rights. The question is, why? I now know I have no rights because I have been forgiven. This is the kind of love I hope defines my new life. And someday I hope and pray to be able to personally express to the surviving children how truly sorry I am for causing them such loss and pain. Choice six says, except when to do so would harm them or others. I need to wait and seek God's timing to complete this choice with them. Within a couple months of my release, my revoked driver's license was returned to me. God provided me with a good job less than three miles from my house. I now have a healthier relationship with my wife and daughter since I have been able to make my amends. We love each other very much and together seek the Lord's will in our lives. Like all our relationships, our path is one of progress, not perfection. In August 2001, we were baptized together as a family. Both Diane and I are blessed to be leaders in step studies at Celebrate Recovery. I love this ministry and know that I need it more than it needs me. Each night of fellowship strengthens my faith. I also enjoy being a part of the barbecue team. I come from a long line of eaters and it gives me pleasure to see others enjoy a meal. Most important, 
I continue to seek God's will in my life. I enjoy living with nothing to hide and nothing to prove. I use the serenity prayer as a framework for each day. As I say it in my daily quiet time, one verse resonates. I meditate on that verse and try to act on it during the day. Some days it works better than others, needless to say. My life is not perfect, but I am comforted by this scripture. I am sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus comes back. God has seen me through some dark times and he has restored me. All I had to do was surrender, give it up, be willing to be willing, let go and let God. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart. I look back and see that through all my life I have been surrounded by faith, hope, and love. There were times when I didn't recognize it or worse that I took it for granted. My family has shown me faith through our unity. Our hope is that we all will find the pathway to peace. God used Carl's and Bill's willingness to offer their forgiveness and make their amends to restore and restore and repair many of their broken relationships. Completing choice six provided them with additional freedom from their past hurts. The shame and guilt of their past mistakes and the harm they had brought to others had been removed. We need to offer our forgiveness and make amends without expecting any reward for doing so. But as you can easily see from both Carl's and Bill's testimonies, the rewards they received for completing this choice were many and great.